Welcome to this season of the Unfinished Business Podcast. Over the next few weeks and months, I'll be discussing art directing for the web with my guests, who are some of the most experienced art directors and designers working on the web today. I'm your host, Andy Clark, and I'm writing a hard-boiled web design book about art directing for the web, and you can find out more about that at stuffandnonsense.co.uk slash books. Now, this season of Unfinished Business is proudly sponsored by Coffee Cup Software, and in particular, their new CSS Grid Builder. If you're the type of designer or developer that likes tools to do their dirty work for them, CSS Grid Builder might just be the thing for you. Now, you might have used what you see is what you get editors before, so you're probably remembering just how lousy the code they spat out was. But let me stop you there. CSS Grid Builder outputs excellent code. Browsers developer tools are getting better at inspecting grids, but CSS Grid Builder helps you build them, obviously. At its core, CSS Grid Builder is a Chromium-based browser that's wrapped in a user interface, so it runs on Mac OS and Windows. This means that if the browser can render it, CSS Grid Builder can write it. In fact, CSS Grid Builder builds more than just grids, and you can use it to create styles for backgrounds, including gradients, which is really handy, borders, typography. It even handles Flexbox and multi-column layouts. But designing a grid is the app's biggest draw, because when you're new to CSS Grid, visualizing how its columns and rows combine to form a layout can be one of the hardest parts of learning how it works. You create a grid, use sliders to preview the results at various breakpoints, and if you're one of those people who's worried about other people using incapable browsers, CSS Grid Builder also offers settings where you can configure fallbacks. Then just copy and paste CSS styles into somewhere else in your project, or you can export the whole kit and caboodle. Best of all, CSS Grid Builder is currently free. Yes, you heard that right. It's free while Coffee Cup Software develop it. And if you like what they're doing, you can throw the few dollars their way to help fund its development. You can find out more and download CSS Grid Builder at cssgrid.cc. On with the show. So welcome to the show, Mark. Hi, Andy. Hi, everyone. See, this is the bit where we try to persuade all of the listeners that we actually haven't been chuntering on for like the last 10 minutes. And this is the first time that we've spoken. You're a complete stranger to me. It's an illusion. But, you know, people don't, they don't want to see under the duvet. They don't want, they don't want to know. They don't want the, the, the mystique spoiled. They don't want to know what you and I get up to under the duvet, do they? <laughs> no, they do not. And that's as far as we're going to go on that I'm topic. I'm going to be very, very serious because that's what this is about, right? Yes. You need to be serious. You need to put on your serious voice. Okay. I can certainly do that. So I mentioned in the introduction that you are kind of famous from such newspapers as The Guardian. And I just want to get The Guardian out of the way to begin with, because I don't know whether you saw, but The Guardian went underwent a redesign recently, which yes. um, took it in a slightly different direction to the one that you famously created back in, when was it, 2010? 2005, actually, amazingly. Wow. And I didn't see all of the tweets that possibly went to you, but I saw your reply, which I thought was just incredibly professional, you know, real kind <laughs> of class act. 
you know, where you said, you know, I'm glad not to just be the Guardian guy. And I just thought that well, was a really kind of class act. It's strange how a project like that can kind of follow you around through your whole career. And of course, I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to do it. It was a fantastic project and uh, I enjoyed the fact that so many people appreciated it. But you do tend to, when you do a project like that, become known as kind of the Guardian guy or something like that. And, you know, there's more to a designer than one project. So in a way, it's a bit of a relief to be able to shake it off and move on. What do you think of the new design? You don't like it really, do you? (laughs) (laughs) Things have changed a lot since we did our project. You know, we did that project in 2005 in a very different context. I think it's a shame that the paper had to go tabloid, but that was a commercial decision. It's saving them something like 10 million a year, I think. So you can't argue with that. I did love the Berliner format. I thought it made the Guardian very distinctive and special. But, you know, when you get down to the, the design details, there's a new editor, Kath Weiner, who's brilliant, who I worked with for many years. There's a creative director, Alex Brewer who's an old friend of mine and is brilliant too, that they decided that that was how it was going to be and all things must change. So um, good luck to them. Mm, no, I mean, I quite enjoy it. The redesign of the logo was a little bit of a shock, particularly uh, when the app changed on my iPhone, which is you know, all the way down here in Australia. That's how I get the Guardian. Is I don't usually use the website. I, you know, I use the, uh, the app on the phone. So that was that was a bit of a shock one day, but actually I've I've got used to it very quickly. Well, it's funny about redesigns, you know. As someone who makes a business out of changing how things look and behave, I'm very very used to this. That it is a shock, you know. Some somebody once said to me that redesigning a newspaper or a magazine or a website is like going into somebody's house in the middle of the night and rearranging all the furniture, and you come down in the morning and you think you know, WTF. But hopefully, if you've rearranged the furniture in a way that works and improves the experience, then people get used to it. So I always say to clients when I'm presenting new designs, I'm not really interested in the first reaction, you know, the instant reaction. I'm much more interested in how people feel about things after they spent a week with them or a month with them or a year with them. And that's the, the real test of whether a redesign is successful. Yeah, that's a really interesting point of view because I think that a lot of us as designers, you know, we we slave away on something and, you know, you go to show it to a client and there's often, you know, a reaction, positive or negative. And, you know, the positive one's great. You think, wow, one, one. And sometimes you'll get feedback. You know, I've had feedback recently where, you know, that first reaction isn't perhaps what you would hope for. And yet it is important that, we just, you know, we we don't make a, people don't make a kind of, you know, a rash judgment based on kind of first impressions. Absolutely. And people have, people have very intimate relationships with products and publications. And, you know, it's not about the first time. The first impression counts for something, but it's much more about, you know, how you feel about things after you've had a sustained relationship with them. And that, that presentation moment, you know, is a, it's a very artificial situation where you've got a bunch of people in the room, some of them very important and busy people. You show them something. And of course, the kind of, you know, the natural human reaction is that they have to have something to say. Otherwise, they're not doing their job properly. But actually, I try to forestall that as much as I can 
by saying, I don't really want to hear what they have to say at that moment. I want to hear what they have to say when they've, you know, had it on their desk for a week or when they've had it on their screen for a week. That's a much more important reaction to me. How do you go about leaving stuff with them? Just on a purely practical note, I mean, are you printing this stuff out and pinning it large on their walls or? It depends on the project. Um, Usually for a print project like a magazine or a newspaper, We'll do a whole set of pages, you know, as close as we can to a a kind of dummy edition. And we'll usually put that in some kind of folder or something so they can keep it on their desk and turn the pages, get the experience as close as they can to a reading experience. For digital things, you know, we tend to just try and prototype. Sometimes it's a series of flat images, which you know, they can put into a browser and scroll through. More often, it's it's some kind of, you know, walkthrough using one of those many tools that you can get now to not necessarily with all the, you know, animations and scrolling behaviors and everything, but at least something that, again, can kind of replicate the experience of actually engaging with it as a user. That's the important thing. That's how to judge things, really. Yeah, no, that's really good advice. So let's let's cut to the chase. Let's talk about the sort of subject of this series of podcasts and you know this is something which I've been you know interested in as somebody that you know wasn't trained as a designer back in the day a lot of this stuff is new you know I'm discovering things all the time and I'm sure that people actually I should just say I wasn't trained as a designer either I did a a modern languages degree at Oxford University. So, you know, we both kind of came into this from the outside. And most of what I learned, I learned on the job from working with people. So, you know, our experiences are not that dissimilar. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted. No, 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 you can interrupt all you like. You know, and I suppose, particularly for, you know, youngsters out there that, you know, possibly have kind of, you know, grown up and gone straight from I don't know whether they still go to design school, but they go straight into producing things for digital. This kind of art direction approach or history is something which is new to a lot of people. And I certainly think that when I've spoken to younger designers about, you know, an editorial approach or in art directing certain pages, whether it be, you know, part of you know a piece of content or even down to you know how you present data results uh, in an application you get a reaction which is often kind of well how is that relevant to the web or how is it relevant to my kind of digital product so i think that this is a it's a good conversation to be having and as i was talking about on paul boag's podcast last week the tools, the CSS tools that are now available to us, you know, particularly with things like CSS Grid, do make producing web pages, at least, that break out of that, you know, traditional kind of two or three column model that we've kind of, you know, all grown up with over the last sort of, you know, 10 years or so. So I think this subject of art direction is going to actually become a conversation that more and more people have. And I hope that there's going to be more and more people interested in, you know, what it really means. Yeah, I think it's something that's it's kind of in the air at the moment, isn't it? Because the tools are becoming so sophisticated. And I think because web design is just growing up, it seems to be something that I, I hear a lot of people talking about and posting about. So it's great to be discussing it now. 
you know, when I was kind of, this is going back a few years now, when I was kind of, you know, researching this kind of stuff and starting to pick up design books, you know, and actually, you know, rediscover people like Neville Brody. Because I can remember reading things like, you know, The Face magazine back in the, you know, back in the 80s and not really. <laughs> We're showing our age, Andy, you and I remember yes, the face. I know. Yes, I know. But, you know, I can remember reading it for the interview with, you know, with Boy George or Paul Weller or Grace Jones. And God, we are showing our age. Although I saw Paul Weller play at the Sydney Opera House a few weeks ago and he was stunning. Really? Wow. Yeah, it was the best Weller gig I've been to in many, many years. Anyway, we digress. So I'm sort of was rediscovering this kind of stuff. And there are one or two books out there. I'll put some links in the show notes as, the, as we kind of, you know, mentioned some. But I think there's, uh, there's a book by Kath Caldwell, which I, th- is, I think it's Kath Caldwell. That- yeah, yeah, I know, Kath. I'm in that. Yes, yeah, you are in that. You, you are in pretty much every book about art direction that I've bought over the last couple of years. Oh, that's good. Glad to hear it. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, you're there. But those are not the kind of books that I think the typical web designer would, you know, be picking off the shelf. So this is what I want this sort of series to be about, which is really kind of getting back to the the basics, certainly the beginning of this series, where we can talk about actually, you know, what is art direction and, you know, what does an art director do? So why don't we just start with that? Okay. Well, I think I think it'll be really interesting to hear what some of your other guests have to say about that, because I think it's something that we're finding definitions for, particularly in the digital area. And I think maybe some of the other people you speak to will have different ideas about it, because my views on what our direction is probably are a result of my background. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned Neville Brody and the face and magazines. I started out in magazines. You know, I did magazines for 10 years before I did anything else. And my job title was art director for a lot of that. So my idea about what an art director is probably still is a hangover from those days. And, you know, on a magazine, an art director has a pretty clearly defined role. And, you know, it's partly about the hierarchy you know, the organogram on a magazine that tends to be designers. Sometimes there'll be junior designers and senior designers. Sometimes there'll be somebody called an art editor or a deputy art director. And then there's the art director. And, you know, one thing is that the art director is the boss. They're in charge of the art department and they're the kind of custodian of the visual identity of the magazine. If you're very grand, you sometimes get to be called creative director, but it's kind of the same thing. So on a magazine, I guess there's probably two things an art director does. One of them they do occasionally and one of them they do every day. So the occasional one is if you're launching a magazine or if you're redesigning an existing magazine, the art director is responsible for that project. So that's about creating a visual language for a magazine. So you're making the decisions about the use of typography and color and page layout and information hierarchy and imagery that all go together to create a kind of coherent, distinctive visual personality for a publication. But realistically, you only get to do that, you know, once every few years because it's a launch or a redesign process. But the other part of what an art director does is that they're responsible for visualizing the stories. 
So on most magazines, stories arrive as a text file. You know, there are exceptions to that. Sometimes a story is based around a set of pictures. But as a rule on magazines, editors commission text. Text comes in, and the art director's job is to sit down, read the text, and decide how to turn that into a visually engaging piece of storytelling. So, you know, you're working out, you know, what the theme and the subject of the story is. You're working out what the mood and the emotions of the story are. And then you're deciding how to get that down on the page, what kind of images to use, whether it needs photography, whether it needs illustration, whether it can be purely typographic. And once you've made that decision, you're then moving on to probably commission the imagery, work with photographers and illustrators, commissioning photography, maybe with a photo editor. With illustration, you tend to go directly to the illustrators. So that's that's the main part of an art director's job, really, is taking a piece of text and turning it into a kind of rich visual experience, including text, that can tell a story. That's probably the best summary of art direction I've heard in ages. I needn't have read any of those books. But that's, you know, that's what I used to do on magazines. I think now that we do a lot of other different types of work, and, you know, most of your guests are people who mainly work in digital, they'll probably have a different perspective on it. And I think, you know, an interesting question to ask about art direction is, what is it about art direction that isn't design? Because if you talk to people outside the creative industries on the street, they probably have a pretty good idea idea what a designer does, and they probably have no idea what an art director is. So art direction is something that we've created for ourselves, this terminology in the creative industries. And, you know, why do we think that art direction is not design? That's quite an interesting thing to unpick, and particularly when you move out of that straightforward magazine world into more complex kinds of projects. That is really interesting, actually. I'm trying, actually, to look up a quote. I don't know whether it was you or it might have been, I think it might have been Dan Maul who's going to join me on the show in a couple of weeks. And I need to find that quote. Well, I think Dan, I, I, I was watching one of Dan's talks quite recently. I think he says something like, design is what it looks like, our direction is what it feels like, or something like that. But, you know, I can't speak for him. He'll have to say what, what he believes when he's on the show. But I got a feeling yes. it was something like that. But I think no, that, no, it, it, it was something exactly like that. But that's a bit different from from where I'm coming from. But that's really because of my magazine experience, you know. And I think particularly also, if you look at something like fashion, you know, our direction is really about image making. You know, if you're a fashion art director, there's probably a little bit of typography in there. You There'll be a bit of branding and you've probably got to put spring, summer 2018 in there or something. But it's mainly about image making. And coming from the magazine world, although I was I was never particularly a fashion specialist, that is very much what our direction is about, I think, image making. And maybe that's a distinction you can make. That our direction is more about image making and design is more about, you know, type and layout. Well, I've got the quote, which is a good one, so it's worth looking up. And Dan said, art direction is the visceral resonance of how a piece of work feels. In other words, what you feel in your gut when you look at a website, app, or any piece of design work. And then he went on to say, Design 
is the technical execution of that connection. So do the colors match? Is the line length comfortable for long periods of reading? Is the photo in focus? Does the typographic hierarchy work? And is the composition balanced? Right. Okay. I think it's an interesting distinction. I mean, I have enormous respect for Dan. To me, I think it's a bit more blurred, and maybe we'll get onto this in a moment. I mean, when I mentioned before, part of an art director's job is creating visual identities. Some of those decisions that you make about typographic systems or something, I think it's really hard to say whether that's art direction or design. You know, I know that working with a photographer to create a set of beautiful images is art direction. And I know that being a junior designer on a magazine and being given some pictures and, you know, some type to lay out on the page, I know that that's design. But I think that in the middle, there's an area that's much more blurred where it's really hard to separate the two. Is that your reminder? Yes, sorry about that. What have you been reminded about? Meditation, would you believe? Oh, fabulous. <laughs> well, you can try, get on to meditating in a minute. I try and do that every day. I'll try not to uh, raise your blood pressure too much. I should have done it first, actually, and then I would have been like totally zen when we had our conversation. No, your voice would have been even sexier. <laughs> Probably send everyone to sleep. I was just actually in a, a, a talk that I gave. And this, I'm just looking at the, the, the notes from this talk that I gave a, oh dear, two or three years ago now. And there was another quote which I kind of placed fairly near Dan's in this, in this talk. And it was from a guy called Phil Kaufman, who is um, an art director. I think he's still there at an agency called Springbox. He was certainly there when I did this talk. And his quote was, designs about problem solving, whether you're a designer or an art director. The two roles differ in that the designer is more concerned with execution, while the art director is concerned with the strategy behind that execution. So I suppose if I'm reading that and kind of mapping it to what you just said, it's an art director's role, particularly at kind of a redesign stage of a project, to actually be talking about, thinking about those typographic systems, whereas a designer will be implementing that system. Would that sum that up? Yeah. I mean, I, I personally, I just can't agree with such a kind of hard distinction. And I think that it denigrates design a lot. I mean, it was interesting that you... We're talking about our direction, and then you use the word redesign. You know, we talk about a redesign, redesigning a magazine or a website or something. We don't talk about re-art direction, but a redesign is very much about those emotional reactions and the feeling that you get from engaging with something. So, you know, it's all terminology, really, isn't it? I, I find it hard to have a kind of clear cut cut-off point between design and art direction. To me, they're much more mixed. But obviously, what's important is the the process of what you're doing and you know the way you approach the work, whether you call it design or whether you call it art direction. It's about wh what you're actually creating and the way you're creating it. No, I mean, I don't think that we ought to denigrate design by, you know, coming up with a, a grander term for it. I think a lot of people, you know, who call themselves designers take great pride in the fact that they research things and plan things and have strategies. You know, design is not about appearance, I don't think. And, you know, a lot of 
very successful and, and very capable people and studios out there who call themselves design consultants are very much about problem solving and strategy. They're not about making things look nice. Yeah, and I'm just sort of thinking to the, you know, the designers that I work with who are very, you know, user focused or problem solving focused that will get very heavily into, you know, the research side of things or possibly, you know, the testing side of things at the other end. And although I've done that sort of work, I mean, obviously not to the extent that a lot of people have, but that's not the area of I don't know, design or, you know, what I do every day. It's not why I get out of bed in the morning to necessarily solve a problem for users. You know, if I, if I, if I was going to do that, I'm going to say something controversial now, then, you know, I, I this might. This is have, a, a big confession, Andy. I can see your, your client list shrinking rapidly as you continue well, you with know, this statement. Well, you, well it, yeah, but, you know, it, I think it's an important conversation to have. You know, yes, of course, you make something which people can use, but there's a difference. I've always said there's a difference between making something that people can use and making something that people kind of love to use. Yeah. And, you know, I. And this is another quote of mine from conference talks. I don't design toothpaste. You know, I don't design the perfect toothpaste or the tube that it goes in. But my work is about helping people decide to buy Colgate rather than Aquafresh. Right. I think I get that. Yeah. No, I know it was a bit of a tenuous one. But, you know, when I get out of bed in the morning, you know, I think that for a lot of people, it's about taking something, and particularly recently where, you know, this whole kind of atomic design or pattern libraries or templates in content management systems or whatever have taken people down a certain route. What continues to interest me is how we can kind of engage with people and tell those stories that you were talking about. Whether or not you're selling toothpaste or digital products or you're telling a story about, you know, a prison escape, I'd like to think that, you know, the the area of, of interest for me anyway is how can we take that story about a prison break or, you know, an expensive watch and get people to connect to it better? Yeah, I think that's a, that is an important distinction. It's about engaging your audience and making them feel a certain way. And whether you call it design or our direction, you know, that that is our goal as people who have stories to tell and we're using kind of visual tools and behavioral tools in order to do that. I think maybe also one of the reasons that this kind of concept of our direction in the digital world is feels important now is also just about making people understand what it is that we do because, you know, a lot of our work is dealing with clients, dealing with management in clients who are paying us money to deliver something, dealing with in-house teams who might be building things or something. And I do think there is a bit of a danger with people outside the industry that they think that design is about prettifying things. So design as a word can become devalued. And, you know, for certain kinds of people who don't, who aren't part of our world, they can therefore underestimate the value of what we do. So I do think there's a kind of desire to explain a bit more about what we're bringing to the process and what makes our services valuable 
And in order to do that, it feels like we maybe need a different kind of terminology. And that's why our direction is is a useful thing to mention. I remember coming across an article by a lady called Irene Au, who she was a <laughs> great name. Yes, AU, I think her name was, is. And she was in charge of material design at Google and she was also at Yahoo. And she wrote in this article, and I've got the quote in front of me because it's part of this chapter that I wrote. She said, this is about hiring a visual designer. She said, hire a visual designer on a freelance basis who can create the look and feel of the site, deliver a style guide and work with your front end engineering team to build the visual assets, e.g. grid, typography, color palette, icons, button styles, etc. into a front end library that then makes it easy for developers to create user interfaces that are consistent. And I looked at that and I thought, well, on one hand, you could say, well, that's very kind of demeaning to designers because, you know, once you've pulled somebody in on a freelance gig for, you know, a couple of weeks, then basically all that you have is a pick and mix of assets that you can just, you know, drag and drop into an interface, which to be honest is what a lot of these things are, you know, material design, yeah. etc. But on the other hand... And this hasn't really occurred to me before this conversation. What you could read into that is that the designer that she's talking about hiring on a freelance basis that's coming up with, you know, the look and feel and delivering the style guide and working with people to, you know, build asset libraries, etc. You could describe that person as the art director. Yeah, I think it it depends how engaged they are with the the thinking behind it, you know, it's kind of an odd thing to take out that quote because it's describing the middle of the process, isn't it? You know, even just creating a visual design, whether you call that design or art direction, it's got to be based on something. You don't just sort of come in somewhere and say, okay, well, this is going to be this color and this is going to be how it's going to behave and I'm going to use this typeface and these are how all the components are going to fit together. Um, you don't do that without understanding the context of the business that you're in, who their competitors are, what their history is, what the strategy for the project is. So, you know, I think if if they have all that behind them, if they're involved in that thinking, if they're fully briefed on that thinking and they really understand what the business needs and what the audience needs, and then they're going into the design process, then they're probably an art director. But if they're not engaged with all that thinking – then A, you can't do a very good job. And B, maybe, yeah, maybe that is design, but it's a very diminished form of design. Well, that's how I've always read that quote previously, because, you know, she talks about, I think it was, it's either in the same article or, or somewhere else. And I've got this here. Here we go. She was defining user interface design. Right. And she said... That she, she defined the workflow. This was she was former head of design at, at Google at this point, and she said that her workflow, that all the design workflow was wait for this, user research followed by interaction and product design, visual design, then prototyping and developing, formative and summative research, qualitative and quantitative data and analysis, psychology, anthropology, and human to computer interaction, wireframes, prototypes, functional specifications, and flowcharts. 
Mm. And when I gave this talk, I was unkind to her. Right. Because I did feel that, you know, she she wrote later on in this article, they, meaning uh, visual designers, understand that visual adornment is meant to support the experience and not be the experience. So I kind of, I, I was unkind to her in my kind of response to that in this talk, because I did feel that that was a view of design that was about the prettifying. Yeah. And about, about how you could take a, you know, you could make a design that was appealing and attractive and easy on the eye and easy to use. And then that's like, tick design's done now we can you know get on with building products or websites and not have to think about it again yeah i think you know you're probably being unfair to her because in my experience from from what i've seen myself and i've heard people from google you know speak at conferences that i've spoken at and so on you know google cares a lot about using visual design and interface design to create great experiences for people and to say something about the brand. So, you know, I think that's probably not a fair representation of how design is seen in Google. But I I will say that as someone who came from outside the digital world and, you know, entered it, I'm not a digital native. I started off for a long time in print. I find sometimes the kind of habits and the protocols and the organization of digital projects and digital organizations overly kind of divided and atomized. And, you know, you you have people whose job title is they're a UX designer, or their job title is they're a UI designer, or their job title is they're an information architect. And to me, it's all design. You know, I can't do my job unless I'm thinking about UX and UI and IA and all the people who work with me, you can't separate those into completely different disciplines because that's not how people use things. You know, people engaging with your product or your publication or whatever have a, I don't know, I was going to say holistic, horrible word, but it's one experience in which everything is combined. And in order to design that experience, you have to be able to think about all those things at once. So putting people in silos is not a particularly useful thing. Now, I can see that in a, an organization like Google, just because of the scale of it, there's probably no other way to work. You know, people have to be siloed to an extent because just the, you know, the scope of the projects they're working on is so enormous. But it's a kind of thinking which I think inhibits good, creative, user-focused design or art direction, depending on what you want to call it. Why is art direction important then for digital businesses or for, let's say, product companies? You know, can you, can, does art direction have, I suppose the question I'm trying to ask is, does art direction have a place when your, you know, your primary output is a digital product of some sort? Well, I guess that depends on your definition of our direction. But if we take, say, Dan's definition of it, of course, it's incredibly important because in the end, you need people to feel good about the experience of using your project. It needs to be you know, intuitive and enjoyable to use. And when they stop using it, they need to feel satisfied that they've got what they want out of it. Using Dan's terms, 
it's all about the feeling. So it's all about the art direction. Of course, you have to get the kind of basic technicalities right in order to create a good experience. But yeah, of course, it's important that, you know, it, it's not the same as creating a sort of interactive feature for a magazine website, obviously, but it's still something where you're trying to create an experience for the user that has a kind of emotional, positive emotional component to it. See, it's funny. Maybe we're going to sort of verge slightly off topic, which I often do, but at least we're not going to talk about weeing in hotel kettles. But, you know, you look at a, a Google product on your phone and whether or not you've got an Android phone or you've got an iPhone, the experience that you have when you use the Gmail app or Google Maps is pretty much the same. It's a, a Google-designed experience, which works really well on Android, but I sometimes find there's a sort of slight incong... What's the word I'm looking for? Incongruity? Incongruity? That's the word that I couldn't get out of my mouth. Between the app and the kind of native user interface that you know you get with the product and that's interesting to me in that you know where is the space for art direction when you are using something like that well i think it's yeah it's about consistency it's about creating great satisfying experiences but consistency is a very large part of that it's one of the things that i always say to clients I work with who uh, exist on lots of different platforms. You know, they might have a magazine or a newspaper. They might have a website. They might have apps. And then they're also increasingly hosting events and making products and doing things that exist in the real world. And they have to present a consistent personality. So it's like, you know, when you meet somebody and they have a certain tone of voice, they behave a certain way and you kind of feel who you know who they are. If the next time you meet them, they're behaving completely differently, you start to back off a bit and think, whoa, you know, there's something wrong with this person. And I think those kind of inconsistencies in behavior that can make the experience a little bit jarring, you know, they can create a little bit of cognitive dissonance. That's what we should be trying to avoid. And whether you call that design or our direction, I don't think matters very much. You know, it's an extremely important part of the the process of what we do and we have to take it seriously well i have my phone in my hand and i've just opened the guardian app and i'm greeted with a, a grimacing picture of theresa may in front of a european union flag may double cherry picking on brexit says leaked eu report let's mustn't talk about brexit because no let's let's not go there Let's that, not go that'll be there. The, ne the next half hour down a black hole if we start. No, no, let's not, let's not go there. But I'm looking at the Guardian app and it's very Guardian. You know, there is that unified experience between, you know, using this app and using the website and, you know, visual connections and themes that, you know, run all the way to the, the print publication. And yet underneath the grimacing picture of Theresa May, I have a, a little kind of sideways scrolling thing, which is of the iPhone in a way. You know, there's a little bit of the, of the next article poking in from the right-hand side to show me that I can pull across and, you know, swipe to that next article. So, you know, I think that 
you know, when when I go into an article, if I actually do dare to click on the title, you know, May double dipping on Brexit, I then have some very recognizable controls, including, you know, the little kind of left hand side back button and, you know, the share icons and things like that. So I suppose the point that I'm trying to make with this is that when you are designing products, there's an obvious case for not breaking people's mental models. And potentially, if The Guardian had, you know, come up with a completely new sort of set of iconography or, or navigation tools, that would have been, you know, breaking those mental models and making the thing feel incongruous on the iPhone. But they haven't done that. And yet the thing is still very distinctively Guardian. Yeah, I think that's one of the the skills is knowing when to just use the the existing device capabilities and behaviors and not doing something kind of gratuitously complex. I think it was it was very different I remember when the iPhone first came in and particularly the iPad when we worked on the first generation of the Guardian iPad app which was actually the um the first project I did in my studio. I left the Guardian to start my own studio. And the first thing we did was the Guardian iPad app. But in those days, it was all much more wide open. You know, there were some conventions in the uh, the Apple Human Interface guidelines about, you know, proportions, how to divide the screen and stuff. But people were really trying stuff out. You know, I remember various, I think it was Twitter at one point had an app that had loads of different kind of drawers or levels that sort of slid across each other. And you really could, try stuff out and kind of make it up and try to do something distinctive. And I think there was a a desire at that point to try and use what the device could do in terms of interfaces and stuff to make something unique that would sort of belong to you and you or belong to your client. But I think now that we're, you know, a few more years down the line, things have crystallized a bit. And, uh, you know, the users have expectations about how things are going to behave and you mess with those at your peril. You know, we we know what to expect when we scroll. We know what to expect when we swipe. And we know what to expect when we pinch and zoom. And, you know, there's really no mileage in interfering with those things because, again, it just creates that kind of jarring bit of cognitive dissonance which leads to a bad experience. And people may not understand that they don't, why they don't like it, And, you know, they may not even think, oh, I don't like this. But, you know, when they close down the app and go somewhere else, you've left them with a bad feeling. So, you know, we should definitely be aware of those things. So talking about websites then, you know, you know, there's there's obviously, you know, art direction for print, which, you know, we could we could talk for hours about this kind of stuff, you know, particularly with your uh, your long history in magazines. We could talk about this stuff a lot. But when we start thinking about the web, you know, the, you mentioned earlier on that, you know, the web has kind of grown up. And yet, to me, in a, in a certain way, it's kind of grown up into that kind of very safe um, and not particularly challenging medium. Maybe because, you know, people think that, you know, digital products are the, you know, the the cool, hot thing that people work on, you know, when every, we used to make websites and, you know, now we craft, we handcraft digital experiences. 
But when it comes to the web, you know, I, I just have this kind of general feeling, and I, and I hope that the new technologies and maybe a refocus on art direction is going to change this, that, you know, the web's just become this kind of cozy cardigan. And <laughs> so many things, you know, whether it's to do with content management systems or whether it's to do with... You know, I don't know, maybe the technology driving what we think is possible to, you know, create online. But the kind of distinctiveness or flexibility or kind of deeper creative thinking that you were talking about earlier does seem to have been largely missing from what people make on the web. Or maybe I'm just being kind of an old curmudgeon. No, I hear what you're saying. I mean, you know, there's enormous creativity out there, but it tends to be in niches, you know, in people's own websites or in websites for particularly, you know, creative bohemian things in the cultural sector or whatever. Yeah, there's a lot out there on the web that looks the same. I think that's because it's easy to make it look the same and it's hard to make it look different. You know, frameworks, there's a lot of frameworks out there that take away a lot of the decision-making about what you do. And there's this kind of thinking which, you know, seems very, very alien to me. But I think for probably young people coming into digital design, being told that this is the way to do things, and it's the they're sort of gray, gray rectangles and dummy type approach where, you know, you, I still see a lot of things where people are talking about designing websites and putting up examples with lots of gray rectangles and dummy tie. And you know, it's sort of, a lot of the time, they're not even wireframes. You know, they're not being used for the, the part of the process that wireframes are, you know, debatably useful for. People are calling this design, but, you know, it's not design because there's no content there. So when we start doing a, a design project for print, if we're doing, you know, designing a new newspaper or redesigning a magazine or something. From almost the very beginning, you know, we'll work out our grids and stuff. But almost from the very beginning, we're putting real pictures in there. We're putting real headlines in there because we can't judge something as an effective piece of design unless there's content in there. And we do exactly the same when we're doing digital design. So, you know, not the very first thing we do, because we have to work out grids and stuff. But once we get beyond that really basic technical mathematical stuff, we wouldn't dream of continuing with the design process unless we had real images and real words in there, because you, you simply can't judge a piece of design without content. But I think, you know, to, there still seems to be a lot of people doing what they call web design but with anonymous grey rectangles and lorem ipsum. So let's, I mean, let's just talk about a couple of projects then that, you know, are familiar to both of us. If we think about something like, let's say DN. Okay. Uh, and I, I'll have to say DN because um, I can't pronounce the Norwegian full name of that newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's Dagen's Neringsleve or something. But this this is a project that we did together Quite a few years ago now. Yeah. A website was. for a Norwegian financial newspaper. Yeah. And, you know, for those people in the UK, it was kind of the Norwegian equivalent of the Financial Times. And for Australians, Australians, it's the kind of the equivalent of uh, the Financial Review is what they call the uh, the business paper down here. 
What's interesting about Scandinavian business papers is in most parts of the world, people basically want financial newspapers to look like the FT or the Wall Street Journal. You know, they're classical, restrained, serif, beautifully detailed, calm. But in Scandinavia, for some reason, they have business tabloids that are really loud and dynamic and much more what we would expect from sort of down market popular papers in the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. So it's a, it's an interesting kind of disjunction to try and design a financial product that has the, the sort of visual language of something very dynamic and loud. Oh, well, let me get off the web then for a minute and let's go back to Oh God, let's go back to magazines then for a minute. Let's go back to Neville yeah. Brody when, you know, the design of the face from the mid eighties. Yeah. And obviously one of the things that Brody did at that time was to basically deconstruct and reconstruct the layout of what people thought a magazine should look like. And he brought a very kind of distinctive, almost kind of deconstructed style to type and layout, which was incredibly distinctive and kind of, you know, uniquely the face of that of that time. Am I right in that kind of summary? Yeah, that's a, a very cogent analysis. Yes, I love that kind of thing. And part of his thinking, I'm, you know, putting words into somebody's mouth who's way cleverer than I am, but part of what he was doing was to actually redesign the magazine itself. You know, we talked about, you know, coming up with the, I don't know what you'd call it really, the kind of the personality or the spirit of the publication in general. Yeah. Which I think will have involved designing the grid systems and coming up with kind of, you know, base level typographic styles and hierarchy and I don't know, mastheads and contents pages or footers or whatever the kind of the furniture, the, you know, the basic components that go into that kind of personality of the, of the publication. And then he would basically create each article almost uniquely but yeah. based on that kind of solid foundation. And I, I kind of hope that that's going to be the, the next step in web design where, you know, yes, consistency is really important. Yes, kind of content hierarchy and readability and, and all of that kind of stuff is, you know, is really important. And that's the stuff that you kind of nail every few years when you do the, you know, the, the redesign, let's say. But then within that or on top of that, there can be this level of um, creativity or, you know, going, going back to, the, to what you were saying right at the very beginning about let's take a piece of content and work out what the real story is and how we want somebody to feel and then design sort of within those constraints. Is that a fair yeah, summary? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that fundamentally that's what magazine art direction is about and most magazines will try and make every feature unique now that's the you know the incredibly exciting thing about putting a magazine story together obviously there are exceptions to that you know if the more the faster moving things are and the, you know the faster turnaround 
and sometimes just because of the kind of nature and the personality of the magazine. So, you know, for example, the New Yorker doesn't reinvent every story. They use amazing images, but the typographic system is very clearly defined. You know, The Economist, although The Economist calls itself a newspaper actually, but, you know, The Economist is a weekly magazine which is completely formatted and templated. The, the face was at the complete other extreme end of the scale, but in the middle are most magazines where – Probably the stuff at the front and back is fairly formatted. And then in the middle, the idea is that within the visual language of the publication, which is something that you have to have very clear in your mind, and that's part of the art director's skill, is what's the right thing for this magazine and what's the wrong thing for this magazine. But within that personality, you have enormous freedom in how you use the elements and how you arrange them on the page to tell stories. But I think the, one, the, the, the reason the face was so extreme – and the reason that that was right for it and why, you know, Neville instinctively understood that even when he was very young, he was a great art director, is because it was a youth magazine. And, you know, young people think they've invented everything. And, you know, I still remember feeling like that. And youth public things about, you know, music for a young audience, things about particular sort of niches in fashion or whatever, tend to have very extreme deconstructed layouts because it feels iconoclastic and it feels like you're going against conventions and it feels rebellious and that's a very good fit with a young audience although um strangely it seems to have flipped over a bit recently that you know there's a lot of independent magazines made for young people by young people now which are all incredibly restrained and formatted with you know white cover with a framed picture in the middle and then inside every story is a full page image facing a centered headline so it seems to have swung a little bit the other way but that's fashion but you know in general that kind of extremely deconstructed approach is something that works for a certain audience but wouldn't work for a mainstream audience but even with a mainstream audience you know you do have enormous freedom in magazine feature layouts about how they look and yeah it would be great if we had that degree of freedom on the web. But there is a kind of resource question. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how these tools enable us to do more expressive layouts quickly, because not everybody has an enormous art department in order to do that. Well, you've just made me think of something which a lot of the web designers out there, are, I think, are going to find quite kind of contentious. And that's okay. You know, that's what I want these conversations to be about, is that, you know, we're talking about defining the, I wouldn't say guidelines, but the, the kind of the, the typographic scale, the grid systems, the whatever those components are, that actually make the personality of the publication. And that can be print, it can be digital, it can be, you know, television. It can yeah. be, you know, whatever w whatever we want to be. You know, I'm thinking immediately about, you know, ITN's redesign of the last sort of couple of years or yeah, so. Yeah. And well, we did, we did a project for RTL Nederland in the Netherlands, a, a news TV channel, which we approached, you know, in exactly the same way that we would approach a print project or a digital project. Now, the stuff that you nail at the beginning, the stuff that you design really thoughtfully that represents the overall personality and spirit of the publication is the thing that we put into what 
we have called for many, many years a style guide. Yeah. Now, on the web, particularly over the last few years, people have been talking about style guides, you know, they've become very fashionable. But as it happens with, you know, lots of stuff in, in a new generation, you know, talking about style guides isn't enough. You know, now we have to have living style guides. And generally what living style guides have included has been things like, for example, component libraries. So, you know, I want to create a, you know, a, a module for a thing. I want to code up something or design something. Um, and obviously to kind of gain consistency. And I go to my living style guide and lo and behold, there the thing is. Um, and that obviously leads you down a very kind of atomic or structured approach to to design. And then from there, we've sort of graduated from living style guides into now what are commonly thought of as design systems. And we see this a lot where you know, some very successful companies, I'm thinking about IBM's Carbon, I'm thinking about Polaris, which is Shopify's design system, or, oh, you know, th th there's, there's an endless amount of these things. And yet these kind of design systems are, I think, in danger of not allowing that level of creative freedom on top of the system. In fact, you know, even in companies that I work with, the things that are not codified into the design system or living style guide are called snowflakes. You know, they're the one-offs. They're the, right. you know, deviations. They're the quite often viewed of as, you know, the hacks, the stuff that we had to do to, you know, make something different. And, you know, if we do it two or three times, then we'll kind of codify it back into the design system is the approach that people often take. And I just, the, the thought just occurred to me a minute ago that, you know, the, the style guide or the design system should really be there to obviously enable you to design things or create things quickly with a, a degree of consistency and efficiency that means that you can get work out of the door. And, you know, you don't end up with, you know, half a dozen different button styles spread across a, you know, a website. But maybe what's been missing is the thing that you kind of hinted maybe we don't have budget for because we don't have large art departments is the art direction piece. You know, the, the thinking, well, well, we have our system, but what do we do to make this piece of content work best? And, you know, I know there's going to be people out there listening that, well, I hope there's going to be people listening. If people are listening they might be thinking, well, you know, that's okay if you're a newspaper or you're a magazine interviewing Boy George. But what I do is, you know, I work on the website for a digital product or, you know, I work on the, the website for, you know, my local government organization or whatever it might be. And I don't art direct stories about escaping gunmen. Mm -hmm. So how does well, this thing apply to me? And yet, I think that there has to be this level of, of attention to the content because whatever it is that you're putting down on screen, 
if you're going to make it communicate as effectively as you want it to, when you want it to, you have to then, you know, read that content, illustrate it, photograph it, visualize it, lay it out in a certain way, but based on the rules that are in the style guide, not just limited by the rules that are in the style guide. Yeah. I mean, I think it it's about the question is what what job do you want this website to do and what are the requirements of the audience? And the answers to those questions will determine what level of art direction it needs. We've spoken a lot about magazines. And, you know, there's a lot of very expressive web experiences out there being made by digital magazines or the the websites of magazines. You look at some of the stuff that like Pitchfork does or, you know, The Intercept does or Bloomberg Businessweek does online. But that's because... You know, the the client, the business, is a content business. Their job is to create content and tell stories and spread information and entertainment in some kind of combination. You know, sometimes it's mainly information with a little bit of entertainment. Sometimes it's mainly entertainment with a little bit of information. But on a different kind of website, like some of the things you've mentioned, the requirements are very different. So you look at something like GovUK, you know, which is a very different sort of experience. It's all about getting the information out there in the clearest, most usable, most intuitive form possible. Um, for anyone who's not in the UK, it's basically the, the British, the United Kingdom government website, which covers everything from passport applications to driving licenses to unemployment benefits and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that's a kind of iconic, amazing project because they have set themselves a target of creating the best possible experience they can for the widest possible audience that has very clearly defined goals that it wants to achieve. And they've done that by creating you know, a visual language, a hierarchical information structure and you know, behaviors and taking accessibility very seriously. And it's a wonderful thing. And that, you know, that's our direction, isn't it? It's about saying, what do we need this to be? What does the audience require? What's the best way we can use our design skills and imagination and our research and thinking and planning and strategy to create the best experience we can? And they've done it incredibly successfully. So of course, you know, when you go to GovUK, you don't want to see kind of freeform, expressive layouts with lots of moving images because that's not what you're there for. But on the other hand, if you're reading the website of, you know, Bloomberg Business Week or Pitchfork, maybe you do want stuff like that. So it's about, you know, the amount of art direction and the form of art direction and the sophistication of the art direction has to be, you know, a, a result of the the requirements of the business and the audience. What an absolutely perfect note to end this conversation on. I couldn't have summed that up any better thanks mark that has given me a lot of thought you know you know even in the work that i'm doing kind of right now and the way in which you know i try to talk about the you know the work that i want to do with stakeholders and ceos and everything else a lot of what we've covered just in this last hour has really kind of resonated with me and hopefully it's going to resonate with uh, with the one or two people that have been listening as well. (laughs) 
Brilliant. It's you know it's really important stuff, and the the more we can talk about this in the in the industry, the better, really. Cool beans. Can we talk about Theresa May now? Oh, please no. <laughs> I get into trouble, you know. I get into trouble on Twitter. It's my own bloody fault. I've, my my Twitter feed now is like eighty percent Brexit. 19% Trump and 1% design. I've got to start unfollowing some people, I think. Yeah, my Instagram feed is about 90% tattoo artists, and Sue's banned <laughs> me from getting any more tattoos. She thinks that, you know, after I kind of hit 50, that I'm kind of, I'm, I'm still in the middle of a midlife crisis. Right. I think the, uh, the intimate details of your marriage are not for this forum, Andy. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. That can be an outtake. <laughs>